Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you've seen a soap opera or a reality show on TV, and you know that what passes for entertainment in our times is usually stuff that's full of unfaithfulness and conflict and fights and hatred and murders and immorality and sensuality and betrayal and other shameful things. Kind of hard for the children of light to find a lot of pleasure in much of what passes for entertainment. Sometimes, sometimes the Bible seems to be kind of like a a soap opera or a reality show. I mean, there's a lot of unfaithfulness and wars and fights and murders and immorality and sensuality and betrayal and all kinds of shameful things that are described on the pages of Holy Scripture. In fact, the Bible contains descriptions of sins that are so horrible that even in our disgusting culture of today, it still wouldn't be possible to put on the screen some of the things that we read in the Holy Scripture. People wouldn't accept it. It's too shocking. So what's the difference? What's the difference between Hollywood and soap operas and reality TV and the Bible? Well, in the first place, what passes for entertainment on TV and the Internet is stuff, their ideas which come out of the perverted imagination of Men. Whereas what is recorded on the pages of Holy Scripture are things that really have happened. And secondly, the entertainment of our times glories in everything that is wicked and shameful and portrays it for the viewers for entertainment, to enjoy, to delight in. Whereas the Bible, when the Bible describes terrible, wicked sins, the Bible does that not to titillate, not to entertain, but to warn, but to warn against wickedness. So we need to remember that as we read through the Old Testament especially, that the Holy Spirit did not inspire this historical record for our entertainment or to um, help us in our curiosity about what happened. The Holy Spirit has two main goals. In the first place, he wants to show us the, the glorious and almighty acts of God, the mighty acts of redemption, with respect to his people throughout history. And secondly, the Holy Spirit also wants to instruct us by the example of sins and errors, as well as faithfulness of those who have gone before us. These things, says the apostle, were written for our instruction. And that's what we find in chapter 4 
of Genesis. It's the last chapter in the first section, the first toledote. You remember that Genesis has Genesis chapter 1, the introduction, and then the rest of the book is divided into 10 sections, 10 toledote, and each one begins with these are the generations of. You see that in chapter 2, verse 4. We've been working on the first toledote ever since chapter 2, verse 4. And you see in chapter 5 that a new one's going to start. Chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And you remember that a toledote begins like that because it's going to tell you what happened next. Heavens and earth were made, so what happened with the heavens and the earth? And then chapter 5, verse 1, Adam was made, he existed, he fell, he sinned. So what happened after him? What happened to, what was the consequence or what was the fallout, no pun intended, of his life? So we're coming today to the end of the first Toledot. It's a description of what happened to the universe after its creation. And at the beginning of this Toledot in chapter 2, things are going very well. In fact, they're perfect. But at the end, end of chapter 4, we are in a creation which is under the curse. We have a human race which is divided. And apparently, at the end of chapter 4, apparently the winners are those who hate God. They seem to be having the upper hand. They seem to be running the show. To them seems to belong the kingdom and the power and the glory. So it's not a very nice picture. Not a very nice picture at all. But yet in this chapter, chapter 4 of Genesis, God is revealing to us his power and his glory. And at the same time, he is teaching us through the experiences of his people at that time. I have the privilege of proclaiming to you the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in this text under the following theme. God maintains the opposition between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And we'll see two things in our text. Number one, the arrogance of the offspring of the serpent. And secondly, the humility of the offspring of the, of the woman. So the arrogance of the offspring of the serpent, the humility of the offspring of the woman. So in first place, let's consider the arrogance of the offspring of the serpent. When Eve took a bite of that fruit, she didn't have the slightest idea of the most serious consequences of her sin. And we, we remember from previous sermons a whole pile of terrible death-dealing consequences that came from that sin. It broke the relationship between man and God, between man and woman, between man and the animals, between man and creation in general, it broke up the unity between body and soul because it caused physical death in the end. Man began to die and in the end went back to the dust. And finally, it, it took away man's right to live in the presence of God, in the holy of holies of creation, the Garden of Eden. Now, we might think, well, that's bad enough. I mean, how, how much worse can things get? But yet, when we come to chapter 4, we see that it doesn't stop there. But things, things keep 
getting destroyed. You see, sin is like that. Sin is like a cancer. You can't just have a little bite of sin and then everything's going to be okay. I'll just go this far and then I'll stop. Sin grows and eats away and destroys more and more and more. So what began as a simple disobedient bite, within one generation, leads to a man standing up and murdering his own brother in cold blood. And that was all in that bite, just one generation. We need to stop and think about that seriously, brothers and sisters. You cannot sin in isolation. God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate him. You can't just take a little bite of sin. It doesn't work that way. It will grow and grow. It will want to take over your heart and your life and your relationships, and it will hurt you and the people you love. That's what sin does. And we all know it, don't we? We all know it by bitter experience. We need to see from the scripture how sin just flourishes in the soil of disobedience and unbelief. Eve, she needed the devil to come personally in the shape of the serpent to deceive her, to seduce her. But Cain, he doesn't need any help. It's all built in. He just gives himself over to sin. No personal attention of the devil needed. Eve sinned because she wanted to, to taste something that she thought would be good. It would be pleasant and good. But Cain, he sins out of pure malice. Adam and Eve, when they sin, they're ashamed. They run away from the presence of God. But Cain, the second generation of fallen sinners, he stands up to God in his impudence. And he says, what do you think? Am I my brother's keeper? What are you asking me for? He's got an attitude. Adam and Eve humbly accepted their punishment without complaining. They knew what they deserved. Cain complains, left, right, and center, up and down. He complains that he shouldn't have to suffer the consequences of his sins. So when we get to verse 3, we see that Cain is the first proof, one of the first proofs of total depravity. He's the first idolater. And when we see Cain, what he does and what he says, we learn from the Holy Spirit how you do not deal with our sinful and fallen hearts. This is not the way. What does Cain do? Well, he brings offerings to the Lord. Well, that, that's good. I mean, he, it mentions that he did it first. It's got to count for something. He brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit 
of the ground. Well, who can complain about that? Well, here's the problem. Why did he do it? He didn't do it for God's glory, but he did it to try to buy God's favor. Cain's religion is a religion of trying to manipulate the deity so that you get more good stuff coming your way. And that is the essence of all false religion, whether it calls itself Christian or it calls itself by some other name. Now look carefully at what Abel does. Abel also brought a sacrifice, but what does he bring? He brings the firstborn, the best, and of their fat portions, the best. So two times the Holy Spirit emphasizes the difference. The difference is not what some people think, that Abel brought a blood sacrifice and Cain didn't. That's true, but that's not what the Holy Spirit's calling attention to here. The Holy Spirit calls attention to the fact that Abel brought the best. He shows thankfulness. He brings the best evidences of the grace of God in his life. But Cain doesn't do that. Cain just grabs whatever. And he throws down an offering before the Lord because he wants to buy God's blessings. He doesn't thank God, but he calls in a favor. And the second generation after the fall then, we already have the full-blown false religion of works righteousness. And we learn in this chapter that it just doesn't work. Because works righteousness, doing things to try and buy God's favor, cannot deal with the problem, cannot deal with the evil that is in the human heart. Now some people go to the New Testament and says that Abel brought his offering by faith and that was acceptable because he brought it by faith. They say faith means that you do things according to God's revelation. God's revelation is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Therefore, we can understand by logic that Abel brought a blood sacrifice, and that's why it was accepted. And Cain didn't. Well, it sounds very nice. It's very attractive, exegesis. But the problem is this. In the first place, not every sacrifice that God appointed in the Old Testament was a blood sacrifice. There were also wave offerings. There were cereal offerings. There were drink offerings. Not all of them were bloody. God, he demanded from his people thank offerings. Not all of them had blood in them. And in fact, the word that is used here for the offering is a word that is used generally in the Old Testament for a thank offering, an unbloody thank offering. The word in our text is not offering in the sense of sacrifice, blood sacrifice. So it does seem that the Holy Spirit is calling our attention here in, this, in these verses 3 and 4 to the fact that Abel is coming with a heart of faith and thankfulness. Now, Cain was not much different than the idolaters that are all around us in our days. People that think that if they just throw God a few crumbs, if they throw God a little bit of their time, a little bit of their money, if they go through a few, a little bit of suffering, then God is going to be so impressed. He's going to be so thankful and so happy. And he's just going to open up the windows of heaven and pour blessings upon you. And there's a lot 
in our days which passes as Christianity, which teaches people that. You know, if you write a big check out of lots of faith to God, then, then God's going to give you ten times as much back. So we have many, many churches full of people looking for health and wealth and prosperity through doing things for God. It's actually, it's actually blasphemy. Thinking that we can bribe God to do what we want. It's the essence of idolatry. And it's the essence of every false religion since the time of Cain till our days. Now, as we mentioned already in the letter to the Hebrews, the apostle says that Abel brought a better sacrifice by faith. You see, Abel understood what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, verse 35. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Abel knows very well that he can't demand anything from God. Abel believes in grace. And because Abel believes in grace, and because Abel lives by faith, and because Abel lives out of grace, Cain kills him. Now think about that for a moment. There's nothing that the natural man, fallen man, finds more hateful and abominable than the grace of God. I mean, we love it, so we can't imagine how anybody could hate the grace of God. But believe me, sinners, unrepentant sinners, hate it. You see, at the very bottom of our sinful nature, we do not want to accept that God owes us nothing, that we owe everything to God, that we depend totally on God's mercy and grace. We don't want that. We want a God who we can manipulate. We want a God who owes us something. We want a God that we can buy. We want a God that we can negotiate with. Quid pro quo. I give you this. You give me that. And when the grace of God confronts us in our sinfulness, then one of two things will happen. Either we will fall on the ground, prostrate in worship, or we will... We will grit our teeth in frustration and rebellion. Now Abel, with his life of holiness and faith, he was a walking sermon of the grace of God. And that's why Cain killed him, because Cain couldn't stand to see it. And as we see the animosity, the hatred of the world being stirred up and growing and swelling more and more on social media and in the old school media, we should not be surprised that the world shows its hate more and more for those who live by grace. Because by nature, man hates grace. And by nature, man abominates everyone who lives out of grace, who preaches grace with words and with their lives. And they hate Christianity as something weak and dependent. It offends sinful, rebellious man's sensibilities. You know, it's even in the names. Here in chapter 4, Abel, the word Abel is the same word that we have in the the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
That's the word. Able, able. Everything is able. Vapor, a breath. Whereas Cain, Cain means something which is forged, something which is hard. Kind of the idea of a, a spear tip, a metal spear tip which can penetrate, which can kill. Power. So even in the names, we see the conflict and the total opposition between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that opposition continues to our days, brothers and sisters. What does the apostle say to Timothy in chapter 3 of the second letter? He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what happens today, and that's what happened back in Cain's time and Abel's time. Now, could a sinner be more arrogant than this Cain? I mean, he was warned. He was warned. God said to him, Cain, if, if you're going through the motions, if you're doing religious stuff for what you get out of it or for what you want, that doesn't cut it. That's not the way, that's not the way things work. Every time you open the door of your home to go out, there is sin crouching at the door. It wants you, Cain. It wants to control you, and it sits there with its grotesque dances and grotesque faces reminding you that for all your external religiosity, sin is really in charge of your life and your heart. So God says to Cain in verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, what is God saying? Is God saying, well, if you just bring sacrifices properly, then you will be accepted? Well, no. Because outwardly, Cain did bring the, the required sacrifices. Outwardly, he was performing his religious duties. But when God says, if you do well, he means if you do things in faith, with true, heartfelt love for God, not out of ritual, not by rote, not for personal gain, not because you get something out of it, not for you, but for him. That's the difference. You know, legalistic religion doesn't deal with the heart problem of the sinner. And we see that because anger wells up. And the children in the junior catechism, remember, we dealt with the, the sixth commandment. The root of murder is anger. Legalism, external religion, can't keep a lid on the evil in our fallen nature. You can fake it. You can be a very good person on the outside. You may seem to be the most reformed and Christian person in the church. But if it's just all a facade, if it's just all going through the right motions, then when you really get provoked, when what you want and when what you think you deserve is threatened or denied you, then you let loose. No more fake Christian talk. You give full vent to your resentment, your anger, your fear of not getting what you want. Now, some people are proud of that. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, I'm a very nice person, but, but you don't want to see me angry. Oh, you don't want to see me angry, as if it's something to be proud of. That's the way Cain was thinking. I'm a good person, but you don't want to see me angry. Look what I do. I kill my brother. Now, brothers and sisters, what happens? What happens when we're on that 
kind of a, a road of living the gospel just kind of externally, but, but there's something wrong with our heart. How do we deal with that? I think we all taste that, don't we? I mean, just this morning, as we were ready to leave, one of the children didn't have their shoes on. They were running around bare feet. And anger welled up in me. And I had to ask for forgiveness afterwards. Half a century in the gospel, and yet there's still so much work to do in this heart. And we all know that, don't we? How do we deal with that? Well, this is how we don't deal with it. We don't try harder. We don't try to be a better person. We don't try to do more good religious things. But we go to the source. We go to the means of grace. We ask the Holy Spirit, Oh Lord, change my heart. Change my passions. Change my desires. And then we go to the confession of the church as it echoes the scripture. And we say, He has set me free from all the dominion of the devil. It's him that does it. Only Christ. Not my works. Not me trying really hard to be a good Christian. But only Christ. That's why we flee to him over and over and over. Now, Cain killed his brother in a premeditated way. Then he speaks to God without any respect. Then he complains about his punishment. And then he tries to do an end run around the just judgment of God because God said he had to be a fugitive and he had to wander around the earth. But even against that punishment, Cain rebels. He builds a city. He says, here I am. I'm not going to wander. He builds it in the land of Nod, which is kind of incongruous because Nod means wandering. And yet, Cain puts down roots. Brothers and sisters, if sin has already flourished and, and borne fruit, which is so poisonous and so violent and so deathly in the second generation after the fall, what will things be like in the seventh generation? And we find the answer to that in the verses 18 through to 24, we see the account of Lamech. Lamech is the seventh generation of sinner, and he represents the very height of the rebellious sinner. He's got two wives. He goes against the very order of nature that a man and a woman, one man, one woman, shall be united in one flesh. He's got two wives. The name Ada means something like beautiful, and the name Zilla implies the idea of a beautiful voice. So Lamech chooses his wives according to the lusts of his eyes and his ears. He lives in sexual perversion. He does not respect the creational norm of marriage between one man and one woman. And he is proud of his sins. He sings a hymn of praise to himself. You can see it in your Bible. It's set out as poetry. He's creating, he's composing a hymn to his own wicked, violent, sinful self. He thinks he is so amazing. If Cain needed God to protect him, Lamech says, hey, I don't need no God to protect me, to put a mark on me, to say that he will avenge my death seven times. 
I myself will avenge myself 77 fold. I just kill a man for wounding me, just for striking me. Cain's nothing compared to me. So we see where things are going. Evil goes from bad to worse. Look at his hymn to himself. Look at all the pronouns. You hear my voice. Hear him mentioning his own name so many times. You myself, Lamech, listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Lamech is avenged 77-fold. That's where things are in the seventh generation. We find a human race which is hardened in itself in rebellion against God. They're living in sexual perversion. They're killing one another with the technology of Tubal-Cain there in verse uh, 22, forging instruments of bronze and iron, not just for agriculture, but also for war. And so they're killing each other in more and more efficient ways all the time. They're building cities. They're developing music and culture and technology. But everything for me and for us. And then you wonder... Why in verse 22, Tubal-Cain's sister is mentioned, just her name is mentioned. And you realize that her name means pleasant to the eyes. There's a sensual beauty which the world delights in. And so what we have here in Genesis chapter 4, there's a world full of sex and violence and power and pleasure and everything for the glory of man. And so if we look at this picture of humanity, violent, perverse, giving themselves over to their own lusts, full of of arrogance and pride, ready to kill and destroy one another, trusting in their own power and wisdom. And we look at this picture, and we have to say that not a lot has changed in thousands of years, because it could be a picture, a description of our society, our culture today. The kind of society, the kind of culture that is celebrated by Hollywood and reality TV and keeping up with the Kardashians. That's the end of those who live without God. They are lost in their arrogance. And it seems like the whole world is full of the seed or the offspring of the serpent. It seems like they're in charge. It seems like they won. And then we ask ourselves, well, what about the seed of the woman? What about the holy seed, the holy offspring? Weren't they supposed to win? Where are they? And so that brings us to our second point, the humility of the offspring of the woman. If we we look in chapter 4, it looks like it's a total disaster. Adam and Eve couldn't even bring up their first son in the fear of the Lord. The second one, they lost due to a violent murder. The third one survives, and the line of the offspring of the woman even gets to the third generation. But where is the victory? Where is the seed of the woman who supposedly is going to crush the head of the serpent? We don't read about Seth or Enosh building cities. We don't read that they're developing culture and music and technology. 
We compare the children of God with the children of the devil. It seems like the children of God are kind of embarrassingly small in number and weak and really not that important, just kind of useless. What is God teaching us here? What God's teaching us here, brothers and sisters, is that the people that are doing amazing things in this chapter are not the offspring of the serpent. They are glorying in their great and mighty works and their autonomy. But the children of God are doing something that's a lot more difficult, a lot more important. They're living in dependence upon the Lord. Now, surely, the children of God were building houses. They were developing the earth to get clothing and food, and surely they were participating in technology and the arts. But the Bible doesn't find that it's important to call attention to that right now. The Holy Spirit thinks it's important to call our attention to this fact, that the children of God are living by faith. Four times in our chapter, at least, we see that the children of God, the offspring of the woman, are living by faith. And we see it, first of all, in chapter 1, in verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. He's like, yes. Could this be the offspring that will crush Satan's head? I don't know, but, but we're on our way anyway. We're getting there. The Lord's working. He's working salvation. He's keeping his promises. Then Abel, as we already mentioned, he brings an offering to the Lord by faith. He shows his thankfulness by grace to God. And then Eve, after having lost two sons, one to the world and one to death, she confesses in verse 25 that God has not forgotten his promise, but he's given another offspring in the place of Abel. That's what, God, that's what Seth means. God has appointed. God has given or appointed another in Abel's place. In other words, Eve is confessing her faith in God. She's saying, oh, it looks like the, the, the offspring, the line of the, the woman is, is nothing. It looks like the, the seed of the serpent is, is growing and ruling on the earth. God has appointed. God is faithful to his promise. It, I don't see it happening. I don't see the victory. But he said it will happen. And I believe. That's what faith is. It's believing what you can't see. It's believing when everything says you shouldn't be believing that. That's faith. And so Eve knows that God will preserve the holy line, the offspring of the woman. And then in verse 26, we get to the very climax of the Holy Spirit's description of the glorious things that are happening in the midst of God's people. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Lord in all capital letters. They began to call upon God who relates lovingly and covenantally with his people. Now, the children of disobedience are living in arrogance. They're secure in the supposed autonomy. 
The children of God are living in humility, secure in their weakness and dependence. And even the location tells us a lot about each group. You know, where does Cain go? Look at verse uh, 16. He went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. East. In the Bible, especially the Old Testament, east means going away from God. The temple faced east. So if you were going towards the Holy of Holies, you would go west. So going east is turning your back on God. It's going away from his presence. Way away, east of Eden. That's where the unbelievers live and all of their self-sufficiency. And where are the righteous and all their weakness and dependence? They're camped out by the gates of paradise. They can't get in because there's the cherubim and the flaming sword, but they're as close as they can be. They're as close as they can get. Because I would rather be, we sang it, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the, in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I want to be close to where God is. So God teaches us his power and his glory. The Bible says, my power is made perfect in weakness. And so God doesn't kill Cain. He lets the uh, offspring of the serpent grow in power and arrogance. Why? Because God wants to show his power in weakness. He doesn't choose what people think is important. He doesn't choose the firstborn, the really amazing guy that's full of confidence and power and strength. He chooses the thirdborn. God is not with the arrogant. God is with the humble. You know what? That's how God is in chapter 4 of Genesis. And that's who God is always. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And see God describe us in the New Testament church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. That's us. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. That's us. To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. That's us. To bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Take that, Lamech. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the only, only kind of boasting which is acceptable. You know, so being a believer, being in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, is not a good thing if you want to be someone important, if you want to be someone influential or, or powerful, if you want to be known and important in the world. Kind of hard if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're one of those people that humbles himself and denies himself and takes up his cross and follows in the footsteps of the master who went to the shame of the cross. Yeah, living in weakness and humility and total dependence on God. It's kind of difficult to be a big person in the world. 
And as we read through the history of God's work throughout the centuries, we, we see that over and over that God works through weakness. Who survives the flood? Not the amazing, powerful, cool people. Not the people that are the movers and shakers, but just Noah and his family. He's a humble descendant of Seth. The arrogant children of Cain all die together with their great and mighty works in which they gloried. So who will be chosen as the people of God? Will it be the great, amazing empires of the ancient Near East? Nope. What does God say to Israel? You are a people holy to the Lord. God chose you to be his people, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Chose you to be his people, his treasured possession. Why? Not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, God says, you know what, Israel? You were really nothing. I didn't choose you because you were so impressive. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. We won't read it right now, but if you read Ezekiel 16, God says, you know what you were like, my people, when I found you? Hear this. You were like an abortion. You were like a little baby that had been rejected by its mother and thrown out into the field in its blood to die. That's how God describes our origins as the people of God. God doesn't choose us, brother and sister, because he's just so impressed with us and he just can't live without us because we're so amazing. The scriptures teach us the opposite. You know, the greatest example of the power of God showing in weakness is in the birth of that offspring who finally came to crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman, the descendant who God promised would conquer. He who was son of the Most High God emptied himself. He was born in all weakness in a simple shelter for animals on the side of the road amongst the peasants. He who was exalted as king of kings and lord of lords. He spent 30 years as the simple son of a carpenter. Your Lord Jesus, brother and sister, got up for most of his adult life it was just the last three years he did his ministry. For most of his adult life, you know what he did? He went to work early in the morning, came home tired late at night, got his hands dirty, worked with his hands, and listened to his boss. That's what our King of Kings did for most of the time that he was an adult here on earth. The one who came to destroy the power of the devil. He died on the cross in all weakness and shame. He emptied himself. He humbled himself even unto death, even the death on a cross. And he gave himself completely to God. He lived in total dependence upon the Lord. And because of this, God exalted him and gave him the name which is above every other name. That's what Genesis 4 teaches us. So the question is, what is your priority in life, my brother, my sister? Are you running after the things that the world finds so valuable? Are you striving to become 
bigger and more important and to have a greater name and to impress people with your success? Are you so pumped up about all the things that you do to improve your brand and to be more respected and liked by other people, to be more successful? Are you so wound up and tied up in that that you leave the house early in the morning and say, Lord, sorry, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read the Bible because I got my kingdom to build. My kingdom, my power, my glory. I'll have time for you on Sunday, Lord. We need to stop. We need to reflect. We need to, we need to learn from Genesis chapter 4. What is our priority in life? What do we see as success? What do we see as important? In Genesis chapter 4, God confronts us with two ways of living in this world. There is the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. The theology of glory is so attractive to our fallen, sinful human hearts. But God doesn't call us to fight for influence, for power, to do amazing things in this world so everybody looks up at us. Not in the first place. God calls us to work hard and do amazing things, but in the first place, God calls us to be faithful and humble and dependent on His grace. And in that weakness and humility, God brings about His glory and our victory. And it's all through the Scriptures That conflict between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross, the power and autonomy of man, and the humility of God's children and their faith. Psalm 1, all of the Psalms, all of the wisdom literature, all of the scripture. We know which of these two ways of living works. We know which one leads to ultimate glory and ultimate success. And it's counterintuitive. Because on the face of it, it looks like the world's way of doing things is the way. But we've read the last chapter in the story. And we know that the way of seeking glory leads to death and shame and hell. And we know that the way of the cross goes through suffering and shame and the valley of the shadow of death and ends up in glory unimaginable, in infinite glory, in eternal glory. So brother, sister, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow your Savior. Cry out to him, teach me, Lord, direct me in your ways, instruct me in your truth. Let it be my heart's one aim to revere your holy name. And Lord, see how the proud pursue me and hound me, They have no regard for you, but, oh, Lord, I trust in you. You are rich in love and favor, slow to anger, patient, boundless is your faithfulness. Strengthen me in in my affliction. Grant your servant your protection. We look to God. In all our weakness and humility, we look to God. We call upon the name of the Lord. That's the first thing. And so, for us, is not the prayer of the rebellious sinner. Mine is the kingdom. Mine is the power. 
Mine is the glory. But for us, it's the prayer that our master taught us. The humble prayer of the faithful. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.